This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to the first ever series of Gosh Pods Goes Green. Over the next six weeks on Gosh Pods, we will be focusing on the important issue of sustainability in healthcare, looking at the issue of climate change and how healthcare practices are contributing to this emergency. I've been joined today again by Dr. Johnny Groom, consultant anaesthetist at the Royal London and founder of GAS, the Greener Anesthesia and Sustainability Project. Today, we will be exploring more about how healthcare is contributing to the climate emergency, focusing particularly on the carbon footprint of anaesthesia and surgery, and looking at what we could do to reduce this impact and make a difference. So, Johnny, you're an anaesthetist, I understand, same as me. And I know that our specialty is quite a kind of carbon heavy specialty, as it were. Why is that? Oh, Emma, we're taking all the blame here. It's not just anaesthesia. We are quite a, we are quite a polluting specialty. I, I mean, I, I think surgery on the whole, so incorporating the entirety of surgery and anaesthesia, and to be honest, the whole patient pathway getting there is incredibly carbon intensive. Obviously, a lot of focus on the moment is looking at anaesthesia, and that's because anaesthetic gases are potent greenhouse gases. They are measurable things that we can actually show signs of improvement towards when we come to our carbon reduction strategies. And this is definitely something that the Greener NHS movement is a metric that they're looking at. So a lot of focus does go on to anaesthesia. You'll even see anaesthesia written as part of the big carbon footprint of the NHS, making up about 5% of emissions in acute hospital trusts. So I think, but I think it's important that we think just outside of our own silo, not just when we're thinking about where these emissions are coming from, also in how we go about mitigating them and dealing with them. And I say this, having set up an organisation with a terrible name called GASP, the Green Anesthesia and Sustainability Project, which in fact is now made up of an incredibly multidisciplinary team. It just so happens that the name GASP stuck. Anesthesia itself, we know that the gases are a problem. We know that there's greener ways of giving anesthetics and we know that some gases are much worse than others. So I think I'll start talking about that, Emma, to be honest, because that's obviously where most of the fingers get pointed at us towards. So within anaesthesia, to keep our patients asleep, there are many modalities. We can keep patients asleep with intravenous drugs, such as drugs like propofol, or we can keep patients asleep with anaesthetic volatile gases, such as sevoflurane, isoflurane, and desflurane. And some of those gases are much more potent greenhouse gases than others. So desflurane, for example, is about 2,540 times more warming than carbon dioxide whereas sevoflurane is in the sort of 100 times more warming than carbon dioxide. So it's much, much, has much less of a carbon impact. So if we're looking at greener NHS strategy, for example, we can see that we've been initially told that desflurane should make up less than 10% of our overall volatile usage. But thanks to the work of incredible anaesthetists throughout the UK, educating colleagues and doing quality improvement projects, we've already gone way past that target. And then the target was moved, as often happens when you surpass the target, to 5%. And we are already, as a health system, starting below that 5% target now. And we're basically, we've seen just by stopping using desflurane, the carbon footprint of anaesthetic gases as a whole reduce really quite significantly. 
what else can I talk about within anesthesia? Well, we know that total intravenous anesthesia, which is a way of giving anesthetics in through the vein using a drug called propofol, has a carbon footprint about four orders of magnitude lower than that of our volatile counterparts. And that's even taking into account the syringes, the pumps, and all of the equipment that goes alongside. And we know that due to fantastic life cycle assessments done by colleagues such as Jody Sherman in Yale. He's done some fantastic work looking at the carbon impacts of a lot of the equipment and drugs that we use in anesthesia. So I'd recommend the listeners to definitely have a look at those articles. So from my experience, I think a lot of anaesthetists obviously would like to be able to give a greener anaesthetic. And I think a lot of anaesthetists know the general principles. So they know that desflurane is bad and they know that Tiva is generally better. But I think, and certainly personally, I find it hard to kind of quantify just how ungreen or unsustainable my anaesthetic is. Are there any kind of tools that I can use where I could, you know, plug in the details of the anaesthetic that I'm giving to get an idea of just how green or ungreen my anaesthetic is and what the carbon footprint is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's loads of stuff out there. I think there's a great one which you can get via the AAGBI called the Anaesthetic Impact Calculator. And that looks at the carbon footprint of your anaesthetic if you're using volatiles or nitrous oxide, which is another highly potent greenhouse gas. And yeah, that will give you a carbon footprint and a cost of your anesthetic. And and the way that it gives you your carbon footprint as well is really useful. It gives it in terms of, because if someone says to me, oh, your anesthetic is 40 grams of CO2, 40 kilograms of CO2, that doesn't really mean much to me. But what they'll say on the anesthetic impact calculator is if you're using 0.5 liters per minute of nitrous oxide, that's the equivalent of driving hundred kilometers in a car. And that to me actually is pretty stark. And that's something I can start to understand a bit better. But there's other ones. There's the, there's the Gassing Greener app from Yale, which is another great, great one, which also incorporates some of our intravenous modalities such as propofol and remifentanil. So you can really start to compare and contrast the carbon footprint of your anesthetic technique. So yeah, those, those are the two apps that, that, that have been quite useful. But there's also another one which came out, which, which I saw earlier on in the year. I think it's called, it's called Propofol Dreams. Great name. And that basically looks at how you can be even greener giving a total intravenous anesthetic. And what it does is it gives you, so that you don't end up drawing up too much propofol for the case, it gives you an idea of how much propofol you need to use for that specific patient based on the sort of surgery that you're doing and the weight of the patient. So again, another great, great app that's out there. But I'm sure there's more that I'm missing, but people are doing some really fantastic, fantastic things in this domain. They sound like great resources. Thank you. I'll definitely check those out. Taking a step back now from the anaesthetic itself, earlier you touched on the fact that we also have to consider all the equipment that we use in theatre, both for anaesthesia and for surgery. Could you talk a little bit more about that? One thing I'm sure a lot of us have realised over the last few years is we have seen a huge uptake in single-use equipment coming into our healthcare settings, not just in theatre, but in all areas of health. And this has a significant carbon footprint associated with it, not just from a waste perspective, but all of this equipment has embodied emissions associated with it. 
as I mentioned in episode one, we know the emissions of, for example, a scalpel because people perform life cycle assessments. And we know that there's emissions associated with the mining of those materials, such as iron ore to make the steel and then the manufacture of that scalpel, its use and then its disposal. That all has emissions associated with it. And when you have a single use product, i.e. a piece of kit that you procure, use and throw away, obviously your emissions are going to really start to stack up. So one thing that I'm really calling for, and a lot of my colleagues and everyone were trying to sort of push back on this huge tide of single-use products and start looking back at reusable ones. And it's a really difficult journey that we're on at the moment. The reason being is because industry makes a lot of money making single-use products. And the reason why the single-use products initially flooded the market was because they saw an opportunity from an infection control perspective when there were concerns based around CJD in the early 90s. Now, a lot of this shift to single-use has come with a really quite poor evidence base, and we're really struggling now to move back into the reusable market, and that's because we've lost a lot of the support structures that we normally relied on in order to get those reusable products back into safe use. So let's think about a, an anesthetic laryngoscope, for example. That's a piece of kit that we use to insert an endotracheal breathing tube into a patient. Historically, those were all reusable products. It's made up of a, a light source, a metal blade, and that would all go to the sterilization lab, or in some cases, just be cleaned with high-level disinfectant. But due to concerns from an infection control perspective, there was a huge shift towards single use. And now in the majority of hospitals throughout the UK, at the end of every single intubation, that piece of kit, the lithium battery, the plastic handle, the metal blade will all go in the bin. But if we want to then move back to a reusable product, well, firstly, it involves quite a lot of expense to get and procure a reusable set for the entirety of the hospital. And it's quite difficult to get money from hospitals at the moment because of the cost of living crisis. But then on top of that, you need to make sure that you have the sterilization facilities set up, the repair contracts set up for that piece of equipment, be it a laryngoscope or a lot of the surgical equipment that we've seen started to drift into single use. So it's an uphill battle, but something that a lot of people, myself included, are focusing on you know, reversing that tide. And can I ask, with reusable equipment, I often hear the argument that the carbon impact of all the reprocessing, the cleaning and sterilization outweighs the benefit from reusing that bit of kit. What can we say to counter that argument? You mentioned earlier about life cycle analyses, and presumably this has been done comparing single use and reusable equipment. What have these analyses shown? Is reusable always better than single use? So it all has to come back to data and we get that from life cycle assessments. And it needs to be a life cycle assessment that is done in a way that is robust. Now, how do we compare and contrast a single use product? Well, we've talked at length about how we can work out the carbon impact from a single use product doing a life cycle assessment. When you're looking at a reusable product, what you need to do is you need to take into account all of the emissions associated with getting that piece of kit once it's dirty back to being able to be reused. So a lot of that is looking at energy and water in the sterilization facility and potentially transport to that sterilization facility. And that way you can compare and contrast. 
Now, there are really good life cycle assessments out there looking at this. And again, I looked at people such as Jody Sherman at Yale, who's done a really good one looking at reusable and single-use laryngeal mask airways. She's also done a fantastic one looking at laryngoscopes as well, single-use and reusable laryngoscopes. And they all demonstrate a significantly lower carbon footprint when using a reusable product. And they also demonstrate a lower cost as well. And I think Forbes McGain as well as another anaesthetist in Australia that's done a similar paper on this. But I would be very, very wary about some of the life cycle assessments that are out there. You may find there are certain single-use instrument companies that will come to you and say, well, actually our single-use product is better for the environment. But you need to look deeply and closely as you would normally critique a scientific paper, get good at critiquing life cycle assessments. Upskill yourself in this, in this area because it's really important. Otherwise, you're going to start making the wrong decisions. I've seen papers in the last year which have been comparing a single use and a reusable item. And in the reusable item, after 183 uses of that reusable item, they'll throw it in the bin. Now, if you're looking at quite an expensive piece of medical equipment or surgical equipment, which was included within this paper, that is not a demonstration of real life practice. And I think that person would lose their job if they were to throw that piece of kit away after 385 uses. But as a result, that showed that, yes, that really skewed your data. But again, I saw another paper as well comparing reusable and single use. And, you know, they've recognized that a lot of emissions when you're measuring the reusable emissions come from the energy grid, i.e. because you need energy to run a sterilization plant. But what this paper was doing is it was firstly putting that piece of equipment in the sterilizer for much longer than it needed to be. And then it was put the energy, the, the, so the carbon footprint from the energy grid that it was using isn't really an energy grid that exists, especially not in the UK. So as soon as you start plugging in UK energy grid data from the carbon impact of the energy grid in the UK into that and put it in for the right length of time in the, in the washer, you can already see a significant shift in the fact that in both cases, in both papers, single use was much more carbon intensive than the reusable products. So there's a lot of greenwashing going out there in papers that are saying that they are well-performed life cycle assessments. So you have to be careful. But I've yet to see, and I, and, I, and I do read a lot of these, I've yet to see a convincing paper that has shown me that reusable products in a UK and US energy system are worse for the environment than single use. And that makes sense to me, given the fact that you have a piece of kit that you're throwing away after every use that has to be manufactured and shipped to the UK. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that moving forward, I'll definitely try to be a bit more critical of some of the life cycle analyses that I read. So in addition to the anaesthetic gases and the equipment, what else is generating all this carbon dioxide? What else? So we've seen equipment, drugs, the drugs that we use, we know that drugs have a high carbon footprint associated with them. On the whole, intravenous medications have a much higher carbon footprint than oral medications. And we use a lot of intravenous medications within anesthesia. And energy. Theatres are probably, I think the UCL Energy Institute did a lovely paper and it showed that theatres and I think pathology labs were the most energy intensive areas of the hospital. And within this paper, it actually showed where this energy use was coming from within theatres. So we know that lights, lights are often on in theatres, You'd hope so anyway. The surgeon needs to see what they're doing. 
theatre equipment, so be that a theatre diathermy, so electrocortical scalpels, anaesthetic machines, and all the bits of equipment that we use that require an electrical source. But then also things like the anaesthetic gas scavenging, which take away waste anaesthetic gases. That's actually a really energy intensive pump. And then as on top of that, the air handling within theatre. So the amount of air changes that we have to keep our theatre air you know, in, in the right temperature, but also reduce the number of particles and colony forming units so that we're not having increased risks of surgical site infection. All of that air handling requires a significant amount of energy. And in fact, that air handling and the anaesthetic gas scavenging together make up a, of about half of the energy use within theatres. So we know that energy intensive areas. And I think if any of you work in a hospital overnight and walk around your theatre suite, you're going to feel a couple of things. Well, firstly, you're going to hear a noise. You're going to hear a tinkering of flaps, metallic flaps outside every theatre making a noise. You're going to feel cold and you may hear the ventilation running in the background. You'll almost certainly see all of the lights switched on and the majority of pieces of equipment switched on overnight. So as things stand, we're not being very good with our energy use. And one thing that we're really focusing on now is trying to reduce that energy use within theatre. And there's ways in which you can do it. There's staff-facing ways in which you can do it. So you can do a theatre shutdown checklist, which involves a checklist telling people what bits of equipment to turn off, how to turn them off safely. And that way you can really start to reduce emissions out of hours. But then on top of that, we should be really looking at the way in which we manage our air handling in theatre. And there is a really long and quite boring document by the government called a Health Technical Memorandum on Ventilation for Hospital Settings, I think it is. And that gives us advice on how best to manage our ventilation. And in the most latest iteration of that, it is telling us that we can turn our ventilation off overnight, but we're not doing it. We've modelled that if you do turn off your theatre ventilation overnight, not only are you going to save 36 tonnes of CO2 per theatre per year, with the current cost of energy, you could be saving of around £36,000 per theatre per year just by turning those things off overnight. So there's lots of things within energy use which are, which are really quite exciting that we can do as well. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something I've noticed when I'm working overnight, that often you're walking into theatres and a lot of the lights are on or a lot of the machines are on. And I guess it does seem like a bit of a waste of energy. I think it's probably maybe important to mention, though, that this doesn't mean that we should just be going around and turning machines and turning lights off overnight if we don't really know what we're doing, that it is important that we have a formal checklist in place to make sure that we're turning things off in a way that is safe and means that the machines that need to be used overnight can still be used. Yeah, absolutely. It needs to be something that is agreed with a multidisciplinary group. And a good shutdown checklist should be foolproof. It should show people what pieces of kit need to be kept on charge. And for some pieces of kit that have software, they need to be shut down properly and effectively. And your shutdown checklist should be detailed so that people don't make mistakes. The greener ventilation strategy, which is looking at the air handling within theatre. Now, that is something that does require a bit more thought. And if you're going to go about doing this within your hospital, I would suggest that you set up a, a ventilation. Your hospital may already have a ventilation group which meets, but it definitely needs to be a multidisciplinary group made up of infection control, 
the people that manage the ventilation plant. So it may be the estates team, surgical team, microbiology, and anesthetics and the annual theatre teams as well. But it needs to be a big group coming to this decision. And it's all about manipulating something called the building management system, which is something that your estates team will be very au fait with. And it's about making sure that that's safe to use. You also need to look at guidance. The health technical memorandum is quite clear on what you should do and how you should do it. So certain things that are laid out within that document are there needs to be a clear indicator on whether that ventilation system is on. You don't want to go into theatre and be umming and ahhing, hang on, are the flaps moving? What's going on? There needs to be something on the surgeon's panel or a light or whatever it is so people know that actually this theatre is, is on and, and ready to use. So that's, that's an important thing. But also we need to think about temperature as well. So if you have a theatre that is drifting outside of certain temperature ranges, you start to reach things like dew points and you can get condensation forming in the theatre. So you have to have your building management system set up in a way that it comes into action if it starts drifting out of a certain temperature area so that your theatre is safe to use in the event that you do need to use it. Thank you. And just a final question. What advice do you have for people listening to this podcast who might want to get more involved with sustainable practice at work? Talk to people. You will find there are many, many allies that want to decarbonise their health setting that they're working in. And I think it's really important that you see what's already happening at your hospital. Hopefully by now, your hospital will have a, a, gre- a green plan or a decarbonisation plan. Most hospitals in the UK do have them by now, but if not, you can start lobbying and pressuring your hospital to, to get their act together on that. But then collaboration is key in all of this. This isn't something that you do as a departmental project. This isn't something that you do within your individual silo. You need to be involving as many people as your project is going to affect. Patients, healthcare estates, clinical engineering, pharmacy, procurement. These are often very multidisciplinary cross-speciality projects. So make sure that you are talking to lots of people. But also, I would also really stress that this, if you're a trainee on rotation or if you're you know, someone that's only going to be in a hospital setting for a small period of time, contributing to a wider piece is actually much more impactful than trying to start one up and not being able to finish it within three months. And then also aside from that, something really, really impactful that you can do may not necessarily be in the realms of decarbonization and quality improvement. Using your voice as a healthcare professional, a trusted voice within the community is incredibly important. We need to be talking more about the climate crisis. We need patients to be aware how much of a significant public health threat is Because to be honest, we can work really hard to decarbonize our 4.4% of emissions, but that's not going to touch the side if there's not a huge monumental shift from an international level. And using our voices as healthcare professionals, we can really start to push that forward. And I think the way that we do that is the the way that 48 million healthcare professionals have done so far, and it's describe it as the single biggest public health threat facing our existence on this planet. And only then we can really start in making sure that that change is happening from a policy perspective. Thank you so much, Johnny. That's been real food for thought. And it's certainly going to affect the way I think about how I practice medicine, I think, in the future. 
Oh, you're, you're very welcome. And, and I think this is just, it's a really exciting area of improvement, of research, of education. People that are just looking to, to do things potentially to improve their CV or just want to do something really interesting, potentially you know, make your career a bit more varied moving forwards. Sustainable healthcare and environmental work is really a fantastic area to go and go into. And I'd recommend all the listeners to get in touch with DASP, the Green Anesthesia and Sustainability Project. We've just appointed two fantastic new directors who will be taking my leadership role moving forward from here. They have an incredible vision, some incredible things planned for the next few years. And as I've stressed, it's a multidisciplinary group. We're ready to, to hear from you and have you join the team. Thank you. That does sound really exciting. It's been great talking to you across the last two episodes, and I hope it has inspired some listeners to find out a bit more about the fantastic work you do at GASP. In the next couple of episodes, we will be focusing even closer to home at Great Ormond Street, and I'm going to be joined by Nick Martin, who is the Head of Sustainability and Environmental Management at GOSH. He is going to be talking a bit more specifically about sustainability within the trust itself. So I really hope you can join me then. The team at the GOSH Learning Academy would love to get your feedback on the episode, as well as hear your suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear on GOSH Pods. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. Thanks for listening to Gosh Pods and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.